Well, it's uh, as always just keeping up with the uh, weekly news could completely occupy our work week, Zach. Um, this past week, <clears throat> um, Osaka, Naomi Osaka has been in the news, and it's not for drug use per se, but it calls into mind and question uh, drug use issues in the form of um, uh, people who come out in public about their mental health issues or their drug use issues, which have caused them problems. Um, so there have been an incredible range of reactions to Osaka, who withdrew from the French Open because she couldn't or didn't want to conduct after-match press conferences, which she's obligated to do by contract. And so the tournament's organizers said she wasn't allowed to continue. So I'll read some of these reactions. This is from the Tennis Channel. Naomi Osaka's uneasy rush into the spotlight. Uh, Osaka is, I think, 22 now. Um, and she first won what's called a Grand Slam tournament, U.S. Open, in 2018. So she was a teenager. Since emerging as an elite tennis player and Grand Slam tournament champion in 2018, Osaka's experienced success and anguish, both of which play out in public. It's a, quote, lot to put up, to put on anyone's plate. And this is a kind of a quote from her, which is kind of heart-wrenching. The thing, after she won the tournament, you have to go on worldwide television and, you know, accept the trophy. And, and she had a talk to... Um, um, Serena Williams, whom she defeated, and Serena had had a break, kind of an emotional upset during the tournament. So there was a lot going on. And in fact, during the interview, Osaka began crying. The thing is, I prepared and everything, and I knew what I was going to say in which order. But then when he called on me, I freaked out. And then I just started saying whatever came into my mind first which is why I think I kept stopping halfway through my sentences because I just remembered something else I had to say. So yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. So naturally any human being, you know, watching an 18 year old put under that pressure cooker, that spotlight has some feelings about it. On the other hand, um, she is a professional athlete. Yep. Does have an entourage. She has people. And I, I don't know exactly who her entourage is, but one of the people they have is a sports psychologist. That's who they have. Let me throw it back to you. If you had a teenager, uh, you've dealt with teenagers who was thrust into the spotlight and was going to have to appear in international media. <clears throat> and they were nervous, how would you coach them? Yeah, there's two things I would want to do is one, 
prepare them for the definite encounter that she's going to have with the press and make sure that she has her priorities straight. Like, this is really what you want to do. And if so, and the only thing holding her back is her hesitation to speak to the press, I might invite her to do some sort of mini exposure to certain press agencies where she feels a little more comfortable and can play it out. You know, they, they spend a week with a presidential candidate like Joe Biden, who's been doing political speeches for 50 years before he does a debate. That's did anybody you know? It doesn't seem like anybody ran her lines with her. No, you there's, know. yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's a new world, you know. You have to be if you're an athlete and that's your main focus. You also have to be prepared to to speak, to, you know, to be a rhetorician in some ways. And I could see why it would be tense. So, I, yeah, she she needed to prepare, and someone needed to be there to prepare her. So let's get into how people reacted to her. That was in 2018. We're in 20, whatever, 21. <clears throat> she was, I think, 19 then, maybe. And now she's 22. Um, Lindsay Krauss is a columnist for the New York Times. She herself runs marathons. And she was 1,000% in favor of Naomi Osaka, which I would say is the popular opinion. How can a bunch of old men throw her out of a tournament? It's called Naomi Osaka and the Power of Nope. When Naomi Osaka dropped out of the French Open on Monday after declining to attend media interviews that she said could trigger her anxiety, she wasn't just protecting her mental health. She was sending a message to the establishment of one of the world's most elite sports. I will not be controlled. So that's one way of framing it. They're forcing her to do this. Now, I want to interject the fact here. We, I, I feel for her. Naomi Osaka in 2020 earned the most money of any female athlete in history. She made $55 million. Um, only $5 million only was from Temis performances. She's first in the world this year with over $2 million in tennis purses. And the other $50 million is, um, you know, she, whatever she features, you know, whatever kinds of products she endorses, whatever clothing or uh, whatever photographs she offers. And in the course of those product endorsements, she talks, although of course it's totally controlled environment. Nobody's going to ask her, why did you miss that backhand? Right, right. Now, some people had different reactions from Lindsey Krauss, one of whom is Billie Jean King. And this is the Huffington Post headline is, Billie Jean King delicately reminds Naomi Osaka of responsibility to the press. And Billie Jean King, you, this may be a little before your time, is a special spokesman for that position. Right. Because women were way under, women didn't get any money on the professional tennis circuit. Right. right. Billie Jean King was one of the ones who did get money. Mm -hmm. And um, she organized the Virginia Slims team tennis tournament for women. 
And Billie Jean King, I don't know if there's a ton of examples of a highly successful athlete who put her own prestige on the line and possibly mm -hmm. endangered her income for sure in order to rise the whole group up. I mean, for sure, it's almost like if uh, you know Lenny Bruce talking to a comedian now or something like that. You know, actually, you're right. Billie Jean King is before my time, but I guess when you were talking to me, I sort of assumed that everyone will know her because that's how much of a famous or infamous case she is, depending on how you look at it. Now, other players were not generally supportive of Naomi Osaka. And you might think, well, they're a bunch of generally young women. A lot of them now are from Eastern Europe. Europe. They're not native English speakers. Oh, Naomi Osaka, her, part of her great appeal, besides her tennis, is her mother's Japanese and her father's Haitian, although, and she plays under the Japanese flag, although she lives in America and sounds like an American young person. So you, in this day and age, she's a one person diversity mm. map. <clears throat> so these Eastern European women, <clears throat> I mean, if you imagine their lives, some of them come from, Billie Jean King, by the way, was a street player. Billie Jean King came up from playing on the course. She wasn't a cl country club player. Um, some of those Eastern European women, you know, they've been through a lot. And if you go down the list of earnings, say for this year, after you, you know, uh, Naomi Osaka has over 2 million, another woman has over a million. By the time you get down to number 10, you're down to like, you know, $160,000. And I don't know how much of that they have to pay. The, the professional tennis isn't paying their sports psychologist, their trainer, their facility. They may pay their tournament fees and travel and hotel. They may, if you're in the top whatever. But there are only a few human beings, 50 at most, men and women, who are really making a living playing professional tennis. Other players, her fellow players, almost to a person, took a more nuanced view. When asked about her stance, they said they respected Osaka, but understood the need for exposure and that talking to the press was part of their job. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then lastly, the tour organizers, who were kind of the bad people of this story, Leaders in the game noted that Osaka's decision to bypass news conferences came as major media organizations have been cutting back on tennis coverage for years, a troubling dynamic for a sport that battles for exposure. Tennis is not, you know, NBA basketball. By the way, I'm, I'm making a leap here. I mean, NBA basketballers is a group of people, A, come from a lot of foreign countries, and B, they don't, you know, they didn't go to country clubs. A lot of them are not, you know, don't volunteer to go and do interviews after games. But everybody, the NBA is an incredible international marketing operation. And everybody understands that the relationship to the players translates into incredible product sales. Right. And everybody gets what it's about. So even guys who are a little bit resentful and give quirky answers, they don't run and hide in the locker room. They come out and they do whatever they want to do. So 
one read on all of this that I want to take out a little bit further is Naomi Osaka's sacrifice. With her candor, Osaka adds to conversation about mental health. Making herself vulnerable, she joins other noteworthy athletes in pushing the once taboo subject into the open. Um, so that brings up a question about, thank God she's the first human being to come out and confess to having whatever kinds of emotional issues or drug issues, except in my spare time, in my quiet life, and I know people think I have too much spare time. I've been tracking for decades famous people who've come out and expressed whatever their problems are. Um, and before I go into that, that's been going on for 50 years. And it traces all the way back to temperance. Uh, uh, most people don't remember temperance, but a guy would get up, usually a man, and he would talk about how he used to drink and have problems. And he'd spend, you know, 50 minutes and all the horrible things he did. And then he'd say, you know, then I saw the light. They, this is before AA. Right. We turned to God and he quit drinking. And for those of you with a literary bent, Mark Twain often shared the podium with people like that. And if you have a sense of Mark Twain, he, he viewed that with a, a bit, you know. Ironically. Ironically. Yeah. And if you read Huckleberry Finn, Huck's father decides Huck is being raised by a minister, a preacher, and he, showed, and he used to beat, get drunk and beat the crap out of Huck. But then he comes to see the minister. The minister convinces him to become temperance, swear off alcohol for all time. But in the middle of the night, Pap gets thirsty and crawls down a stanchion, gets a jug, drinks it all, climbs back up and falls and breaks his arm and is found, you know, writhing in the cold in the morning. And the minister says, yeah, he'll get temperance if we, you know, break both his arms, maybe. And, you know, Huck, you could, Huck is sort of just watching this. He's not anticipating his father's, you know, going to turn into a good guy. So how well do these confessionals work? And I've reviewed this data many times. The Global Burden of Disease Study found the U.S. ranks fifth in the world in daily life activities lost, counting dying, and also disability from anxiety disorders and 11th in the world from depressive disorders. Across all mental disorders, the U.S. ranks fourth in the world in life years and ability lost. <clears throat> That's unbelievable. There are 166 nations in the study. We're fourth, counting poor nations and European nations and Russia and Poland and Asian. How's that possible? So one question we would ask is, what would it take for the U.S. to reduce mental disorders? <clears throat> and I don't know, I'm going to frame it the way that Billie Jean King did. Billie Jean King is old now. Um, she's fought a lot of battles. Um, oh, she was gay before being gay was in. And that was a big hit to take in those days. 
So she's faced a lot of onslaughts. Her own mother rejected her. But Billie Jean King, you know, survived. And if you asked her, or if you asked Jonathan Hari, what contributed to her survival, <clears throat> I don't know, what would Johan Hari say to her mental health stability? Purpose in life. And an involved in the community. Uh, right, exactly. And can give it to say, other people to a purpose. Yep. <clears throat> so the question is, will Naomi Osaka be happier if she withdraws from the tennis circuit? And one answer could be, in life, she's willing to sacrifice $55 million. If she could become a tennis pro at a local club where they don't do press conferences, you make a decent living, you know, make $55 million. I don't know who she's supporting. I don't know about her family life. She maybe, yeah, maybe she just wants to be a teacher or something. But <laughs> beyond that, it, either that or now she has this new identity as a permanently, you know, unstable once tennis star. Right. I mean, she'll she'll have to see herself in that light. And, you know, okay, You're, it's a free country. Nobody can say she wasn't allowed to quit the mm-hmm. tour. That nobody can say against that. The questions are, what are the consequences? And is she prepared to deal with them? Um, now, Serena Williams, of course, is somebody, she beat Serena Williams in 2018. Serena Williams is almost 40 now, and she still performs at the top of her game. She hasn't won a tournament since she was pregnant. She also looks like somebody who didn't enjoy press conferences. Some have been yeah. a little bit content, but she's done a million of them by now. Let's just say she's practiced. And, you know, Serena Williams likes to be a professional tennis player, apparently. She's had a child. She's almost 40. She hasn't won in four years, but she seems to like to do this. So I want to go into a history of personal revelations. As I said, I have a lot of spare time. So I've been doing this for 40 or 50 years. Um, Do you know who Sid Caesar is? Mm. Mm. Sid Caesar was the biggest comedian on television in the 1950s. He did something called a show of shows. Oh, I do know the show of shows. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a kind of a slapstick. <clears throat> and everybody started out with him. You know, Woody Allen started writing for him. And, um, and then, you know, he was done. That, you know, that gig lasted three or four years. He, I'm, sure he had enough to pay his rent on his Park Avenue apartment. And then he made a comeback when he wrote a memoir called Where Have I Been? And he reflects on how he spent his time in the 50s when he had a ton of dough. And he smoked cigars nonstop and he drank a lot. And now he had quit drinking. And for a short time, he was adopted by the National Council on Alcoholism, now the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, 
but he didn't make the grade because he said, teacher, quit drinking without going to AA. And you're kind of not allowed to do that. <laughs> so Sid Caesar, his second career as a confessed alcoholic, couldn't take off the ground. Right. Next in the pantheon, I was in 1982, where have I been? In 1989, William Styron wrote Darkness Visible, and he published it originally in Vanity Fair, so I read it instantly before it became a book, bestseller. Now, I, I hope I'm not ganging up on Maya. Maya wrote about the book. She identified with him admitting his depression. But I had to remind Maya of two things that she said she didn't either know or remember. <clears throat> William Styron became depressed when he stopped drinking as he got into his 60s. He didn't stop drinking because he had a drinking problem. At Late at night, he had the habit of having whatever. He drank a couple of scotches and listened to classical music. But, you know, he was no longer able to digest alcohol and he quit. And he launched into a depression. That's not a standard American temperance story. Mm. But the second part that Maya didn't remember, uh, William Styron rejected antidepressants. So from the start, he said, oh, antidepressants don't work. And his cure, if you have enough money, you can do this. He was hospitalized and he went to a sanitarium and he kind of did, you know, like that Scottish psychiatrist cure of kind of just riding it out and then returning to life. Are you going to juxtapose this with uh, our tennis story? Because it sounds like it has some deep, meaningful parallels. You tell me. What's the parallel? Help me <clears> out. <throat> well, the idea of having a problem, it being a real problem, it feeling impossible, but knowing that there's no alternative to just sort of dealing with it however you need to deal with it, whether that's gathering other resources or connecting with other people who can help you, as opposed to uh, medicalizing the problem or going the standard route the standard route and sacrificing your identity. See, the, I think the idea that Naomi Osaka is brave because she admitted that she has a mental health issue is that's one way to look at it because, you know, that puts some sort of a reputational thing on the line. That's making herself vulnerable. But another way to see bravery would be to say, I have these issues and I'm going to work out how to deal with them and then deal with them. And that, you know, that's another form, opposite form of bravery. And that the set, both, both um, involve sacrifices. One is sacrificing just your, the stability <laughs> of your, your own image in your mind and in the public eye. That would be saying, you know, you're sacrificing that by, by saying, well, I have a mental disorder, I'm this person. But the other is sacrificing your, your comfort and sacrificing, it, for, for the sake of retaining your identity and building on it. And you are being vulnerable in public. I mean, one way to go, I mean, you know, when uh, Patti Smith performed Bob Dylan at the Nobel Prize, she forgot her lyrics. And she's, you know, in her 70s. And she stopped, you know, and everybody cut her a break, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you're not perfect. 
and you go haltingly through your performance. And she's a professional performer, you know, and everybody said, whatever. But I want to take this one step further. The original meme for people admitting they had a malnal illness in terms of the medical model mm-hmm. used to be, oh, they admitted it, got treated and got better. Right. And so right away, the William Styron story doesn't make it, A. And if you take one step further back, <laughs> Naomi Osaka recognized her anxiety and depression in 2018. Can't they cure that? And the answer is yeah. no. And the, I mean, your and my response is to think coaching, maybe she could rehearse, you know, doing uh, um, press conferences. And so in, a, in other words, you're, you're saying, I think, that people widen the goalposts with the assumption that just if you admit you have mental illness and recognize it, you're in good territory now because we have all the treatments for it. Once you admit it, you're good. But the the real goalpost, the real goal would be ameliorating some sort of mental illness, getting better. And so no one asked the question, is everybody getting better? Right. Or, you know, performing. I mean, she, she knows how to play tennis. She's won four grand slams and nobody in the last five years has done that. Aside, no woman has done that aside from Serena Williams. So she can do that. And so if, you know, she got up and was a kind of a crummy mm. after you know trophy speaker people would have to deal with it they'd cut her a break and she'd probably get better at it have you ever heard elon musk speak in public oh no he's horrible i mean he's absolutely horrible but people are fascinated by him because he's the most elite and prominent and best at what he does I imagine that would be something similar. You know, he doesn't okay, so seem to be a worrier about how he's coming across. You know? <laughs> no, no. One of his strong points seems to be an invulnerable right. ego, which is its own problems. So <clears throat> I want to turn to somebody who I um, watch every Sunday, just before we do our recordings. Jane Foley <laughs> is the, since 2016, post-CBS Sunday morning. I love that show. Yeah, She's great. She's now in her 70s. But Jane Pauley has a, a, a remarkably long history. You might be amazed. From 1976, because she looks so young, from 1976 to 1989, she was a co-host on the Today Show at NBC. And everybody assumed that she would be the eventual successor and become the main moderator of the show and then they brought in Deb and Norville and who I who knows what all transpired but after 27 years she left NBC um so in their 2004 autobiography called Skywriting a life out of the blue Jane Pauley revealed that several years ago she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder it's a revelation that surprised her fans and colleagues alike. Most at NBC didn't know about her illness so that during a leave from the network, she had been admitted to a psychiatric clinic. Jane says she decided if only one good thing came out of her experience, it would be the opportunity to raise awareness about 
bipolar disorder. So one question we could ask is, since 2004, has bipolar order declined among Americans and young women in particular? Certainly not. No. People often talk about an epidemic of depression and bipolar illness and anxiety. But here's the most ironic thing of all. Um, Jane, you, if you watch Jane Bully on Sunday morning, she's now 70, she's three children. She's married to a famous guy, the cartoonist. I mean, she looks and acts like a normal, whatever those people do. She's cheerful and smart. I've never seen her mentioned bipolar disorder. And in her Wikipedia entry, I, I was stunned to see that it doesn't mention that she underwent psychiatric treatment or has bipolar disorder. Would you say that she um, became better and better the less and less she focused on her bipolar disorder? It seems like it's like not something that even comes up now. Right. I mean, you and I, I think our best interpretation would be, well, I mean, obviously she went to be treated for it in 2004. Well, years, several years before 2004. And then she, her career became rocky after that. She tried a show, daytime show, it didn't work. Who knows what, you know, that's the ups and downs of being, you know, in the of media elite. Um, but once again, she has been available for psychiatric treatment for decades. And she doesn't get on television now and say, oh God, just take lithium and you'll get better. Right. Like I did, she doesn't do that. <laughs> and so I think what you and I would be tempted to say is that she matured out. Mm -hmm. By the age of 70, she's had some ups and downs. She has three children. Maybe she doesn't feel she has to be, you know, the host of the Today Show, which is sort of the numero uno position in the country for that kind of work. I don't know. And maybe she's lowered her expectations, increased her comfort level, helped nurture children. And now maybe she just sees herself as a normal person. And so if there's any news breaking event right now, here's what I would say it was. Um, the meme used to be, you know, back going back to the darkness visible, that people would admit their mental illness and we had marvelous ways to treat and cure people. Nobody even bothers with that anymore. Naomi Osaka doesn't get up and say, oh, I recognize the depression and anxiety. Now I'm getting treated and I'm fine. And Jane Pauley doesn't say, oh, I had bipolar and thank God they knew how to cure that. And I now can come back in front of the media. That's not the story riff anymore. Story I'm glad I was able to coast back along to the track of, you know, a good life. Is the boring story that they would tell if there was a story. And we're going to talk in a future episode about um, the program Mayor of Easttown, mm -hmm. where Mayor is a character who has problems, 
and her family has problems and there's no cure for it depicted in the show except living her life with purpose and in relationships and proceeding forward. We seem to be undergoing possibly a paradigm shift in America where we've given up the ghost of the idea, oh, you know, anxiety, depression, bipolar, they're just diseases and they're just as curable medically as pneumonia or whatever, or we can handle them like diabetes. People don't believe that anymore. And the reason they don't believe it anymore is because it's not true and you, can, you don't find examples of it being true. So, you know, maybe I could do a, just 10 minutes on, uh, do you think, on the old American drinking story? Go. Um, Atlantic published a piece called America Has a Drinking Problem. So once again, if you're reading this in 2021, you're saying, huh, haven't they cured all that? Wasn't there AA? Don't they have now Trexone? Um, and in Atlantic, our good friend, um, Gabriel Glasser said, oh, now Trexone cures alcohol problems. I think that was in 2018 also. And there, we still have a drinking problem in America. Huh. And in fact, according to Kate Julian, the problem has gotten worse. And here's her brief analysis. A little alcohol can boost creativity and strengthen social ties, but there's nothing moderate or convivial about the way many Americans drink today. Mm. So after all of these years, and with naltrexone, which, you know, uh, Gabriel says lowered her urge to drink so she could drink moderately, people are drinking more excessively? Is that where we ended up in 2021? And here's the way Kate Julian describes the story. Some of my own friends, mostly 30 or 40 something women, a group with a particularly sharp uptick in drinking, regularly declare that they are taking on an extended break from drinking only to fall off the wagon immediately. Now you and I, I don't wanna make any claims or we're experts in that thing of people going, boom, I'm just gonna quit. Then they don't quit and they have no fallback position. Mm -hmm. One went from extolling the benefits of dry January in one breath to telling me a funny story about hangover cure bags on the next. A number of us share the same wonderful doctor. And after our annual physicals, we compare notes about the ever nudgier questions she asks about alcohol. So they're all going to the same internist doctor, who's a woman who tells all of her and her friends the same thing. Maybe save wine for the weekend, suggests with a cheer so forth, she might as well be saying, maybe you don't need to drive nails into your skulls every day. <sighs> I don't have interactions like that with my doctor. I don't, I'm, we don't practice conflict. We don't tell people, oh, 
you should do X or Y. Right. And when they're doing X, we say, oh, you're killing yourself, you idiot. We don't <laughs> do that, no matter how politely we put it. Um, I have to admit when those doctors ask me, I have an answer for the question, which is true. When they say, oh, do you drink? Do you smoke? I say, no. And they say, do you take recreational drugs? And I say, not anymore. Nobody could possibly answer that question. Yes, I don't think. Right. Have that on your medical record. Right, right. If you have kids or anything. Yes comes with a whole lot of complications. Yeah. Even, even there's, and there's a spectrum of yes. So yeah, I, I, I always answer no to that too. Even if I enjoy uh, cannabis from time to time. <laughs> and then when they ask, do you drink? I confess, but the correct oh, yeah. <laughs> one to two drinks a day. And that's what I say. And I don't, and no doctor I've ever had, I go to a few, has ever told me, oh, you should quit drinking. None has ever said that to me. And I would, I, in that, if that interaction came, I would say, uh, or that you should cut back to drinking, to only weekends. I would say, doctor, I, I don't view that my life that way. I know a little bit about the subject. I think my level of drinking is actually, you know, I'm 75 and I'm still alive for God's sake, and I've never had a heart attack. I attribute that's my, that truth to the fact that I drink. So here's this woman in 2021. You may, may, may recall a hundred years ago, we had national prohibition in America where here was the concept. Let's make all drinking illegal. Won't that solve all our problems? And a hundred years later, we've come up with a great idea. Well, let's tell people drinking's bad for them and they shouldn't do it medically. Which the World Health Organization has come out and said there's zero, um, there's no safe level of drinking. Right. Um, and so now there's a really long article, and, and because as I said, I've got a lot of time on my hands. I read every word of the article twice. And um, here's the question she posed. What most of us wanna know coming out of the pandemic is this, am I drinking too much and how much are other people drinking? And is act alcohol actually bad? And then she said, I, I'll summarize her answer. Um, people have been drinking since human beings existed. Fermentation is a fundamental natural process. Then amazingly, she says, people who drink do better than people who don't drink. Hmm. Then she says, I like to drink. Her problem with her doctor is she likes to drink wine. And here's how she resolves this paradox. Um, she then decides that she doesn't cite evidence based on the World Health Organization that drinking is bad for you and it increases some likelihood of cancer. I'll just, we don't have time. People who drink live longer than people who don't drink. You can describe that medically because most Americans die of heart disease and alcohol reduces heart disease. It increases slightly some forms of cancer Nobody wants to get cancer. And I'd be wary if I had the cancer gene, a breast cancer gene to drink or hardly drink. 
But overall, the balance is you live longer. And she says that alcohol is bad for you, but that people who drink do better. And her resolution of that is that she analyzes the history of humanity and she finds that alcohol allows people to be sociable. And that being sociable is healthy and prolongs life and enables you to succeed. And I, I half agree with that. Yeah. So here's um, her final bottom line. But even presuming that this story of natural selection is right, it doesn't explain why 10 million liters later, 10 million after human beings, whatever, emerged, apes emerged from the vines and drank fermented fruit. 10 million years later, why I like wine so much. It should puzzle us more than it does. And she refers a lot to a book by a man named Edward Slingerland in his wide ranging and provocative new book, Drunk, How We Sip, Dance and Stumbled Our Way to Civilization. That one of the greatest foci of human ingenuity and concentrated effort over the past millennia has been the problem of how to get drunk. Well, I, would, I wouldn't say that. I would say how to consume alcohol in a way that is not destructive, but is pleasurable. Occasionally that involves getting drunk. And for her and her friends, I don't think they're getting drunk. The damage done by alcohol is profound. Impaired cognitive and motor skills, belligerence, injury, and vulnerability to all sorts of predation in the short run Damage livers and brains, dysfunction, addiction, and early death as years of heavy drinking pile up. Whew. Of course, we're into heavy drinking now in that sense. She snuck that in at the end. And I don't know, um, you know, whether I'm an example, which I'm an example of. I'm 75. I'm alive. I've never had heart a heart attack. And people judge for themselves, you know, how cognitively alert I am. But I, I don't identify with that statement. As the importance of alcohol as a caloric stopgap diminished, why didn't evolution eventually lead us away from drinking, say by favoring genotypes associated with hating alcohol stay? She's still analyzing this crazy paradox, which is... People who are better educated and make more money are more likely to be drinkers. And to drink, yeah. And so she's got this whole convoluted ball of wax where it's because they're able to be more sociable and being sociable allows you to be healthy and to advance in life. All right. But then, of course, you're not allowed to... One of her no-nos is you're not allowed to drink alone and I don't know if I should confess on worldwide media, but I've already had two drinks this morning alone in my I knew it. Flatbush <laughs> apartment. And I mix bourbon with my coffee in the morning. And here we are being sociable. We're being sociable. That's true. <laughs> Thank God. But you so, morning. you're also aware. You are aware <laughs> that I've written a 1500 word piece on mayor and HBO, and harm reduction this morning. That's I didn't realize that was this morning, but okay. I get a girl. 
um, that it didn't, so, uh, why didn't evolution eventually lead us away from drinking, say by favoring genotypes associated with health? So her concept is alcohol is bad for you. Our bodies, we should have evolved to people who don't like alcohol. And then because they would live longer and be more successful, but that's not true. That it didn't suggest that alcohol's harms were over the long haul outweighed by some serious advantages. And then she gets into her social shtick. Boy, that's a long way around. And I don't totally disagree with it. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I mean, a, a great part of alcohol's appeal and advantages is making people sociable and allowing people to enjoy time together. And when people get together, they enjoy drinking together and it increases conviviality and sharing. And drugs do that too, by the way. She's not going to get into drugs. You know, that's when I read this, you know, it reminded me of Nora Volkoff, how she has this deep-seated belief, something that she's preached. And so she has to, all of the things that she's learning around it that seem to be paradoxical to it, she has to find a very, because she's intelligent, she can, but she has to find a very creative ways to tiptoe around the thing that she's been preaching that she just can't let go of. This whole elaborate essay in Atlantic, one of the most advanced, 2018 published Gabriel's class series, you know, AA is bullshit, take methotrexone. And if you go way far back to 1990, it published my article, Second Thoughts About a Gene for Alcoholism, where I discounted that mm -hmm. um, there was an identifiable gene for the alcoholism addiction, as Ken Blum uh, claimed. They're still trying to square the circle to explain the apparent healthiness of the large majority of drinkers. And in fact, I don't want to use the word superiority seems like a bad word, but they that they live better lives. They're better educated and higher economy people. They're more sociable. They have better lives in general. People who drink in general have better lives. I raised my children to be able to consume alcohol gracefully and socially because I think that's a life advantage. I think it's something that I have to uh, offer them. And, you know, my wife and I, my wife is Romanian, which is you know, like Italian, but farther east, could do that. And we did it. And, you know, we introduced them to alcohol when they were 13 or 14. And we taught them appropriate ways of drinking. And we expected them to, you know, accomplish a lot in life. And um, drinking was a sideline to leading an enjoyable life. And all three of my children consume alcohol gracefully as a part of a constructive existence. And whether I do the same, I'll leave that for others to judge. But um, here in 2021, in the most advanced intellectual, one of the most advanced popular intellectual publication periodicals, they're still dancing with the devil. Well, I like alcohol. I seem to be okay. My friends are kind of privileged people. I mean, there are other writers living in New York making good salaries who seem to enjoy their lives. Many of them are married and have children. And, you know, 
the percentage of abstainers is far higher among the tribe people, among minority people, who when they do drink often tend to, to dislocate their lives. But that's not the alcohol that's doing that as indicated by the fact that a much smaller percentage of people with a high school or lower education consume alcohol than people with a college degree or higher. And when I read this, I think, you know, we really haven't gained an inch in a hundred years. And this is called Sundays with Stories. So let me, I'll tell you a story that relates. I went recently to, I have a sleep apnea. And um, so I had to get a sleep test to see what, what what positions I was lying in that made me snore more or less or whatever, or where my breathing was uh, worse or le- better. And so I, I got it sent into an ENT, actually, as a sleep study and uh, uh, neurologist. But then I also went to see an ear, nose, throat doctor. And they just looked to see, I mean, they're surgeons. So they're kind of looking with that bent, like, oh, what can I operate on? But I had this woman, uh, she she you know, put a camera down my nose into my throat and was looking at all these places and she said you know i could say like i could do surgery on any number of areas here that would probably improve your breathing but who knows if it would make things worse in other respects so let's just talk about lifestyle stuff there's surprisingly or maybe not so much there's some lifestyle things you can do and then she looked at my chart and she said well looks like you've been losing weight so that's good by the way uh our our own LPP coach D um, D Cloward is coaching me through this experience of trying to, yeah. Yay, so, D. so she's been a help there. Um, she said, okay, well, that's good. So tell me about, and she went through this checklist of just normal things that you could reduce or change. And her, her, uh, what she said to me up front was, I want to make sure that if you think about these things, there are things you could really do, you know, you don't want to just, nod your head yes and then not do them and let's let's think about it so because i i could do a surgery you know i could do a palate surgery or something like that in your mouth but those surgeries suck so let's just think about the so she went through the list and she talked about like when are you eating and is it right before bed and are you exercising are you in this the sleep study came back if i'm laying on my side i have no events at all well how can we get you lying on your side if it makes sense and then there was a drinking thing and I had already said that I drink one or two drinks a day, which is true. Um, and she said, well, it does say that if you reduce drinking, especially before bed, that it could help. Unless you like drinking. <laughs> and that was, I, I laughed at that. And I said, well, so why do you say that unless you like drinking? And she said, well, first of all, there's no exact, it's sort of like the her bent with the surgery. It's not exactly a sure thing that if you stop drinking and you enjoy it, that you get to sleep or stay asleep better. There are a lot of reasons why if you enjoy it, then you might want to leave it alone, especially because you're not drinking excessively. So I, you know, I was quietly applauding that. And she said, or maybe I'm biased because I don't know, I do surgeries 14 hours a day. And I really like my beer when I go home. <laughs> so I enjoyed that. I got a medical professional who's speaking so honestly. It's like, that wasn't that hard. Was it regular doctors? are not big disease abstinence people. Right. And the reason for that is because they have to deal with regular people who are going to live their lives and they're acutely aware of the range of human behavior 
and that telling people to do things that they're not going to do is not helpful. So I'll just end with one last story. My sister-in-law, the widow of my brother, actually developed breast cancer. And alcohol is a mild risk factor for breast cancer. And, you know, I just listened to her talk about her treatment, her oncologist, and my sister-in-law was raised as a Mormon at the highest levels of the Mormon church. She only learned, you know, she had to learn to drink on her own. And she enjoys wine before she goes to bed. And when she discussed that with the oncologist, the oncologist looked at her and said, "Um, you know, perhaps you should only drink one glass of wine before you go to bed, (laughs) Like, cut cut your break here. At the time was over 70. She's now over 80. Uh, You know, the oncologist is thinking, I'm going to tell this woman who's been drinking wine for 50 years, why don't you just stop drinking wine? That'll be good for everybody. Maybe we could come up with a little more, steer a little more in between course, taking everything about this human being into account. And, you know, there's been no recurrence, thank God. And, you know, she still enjoys drinking wine before going to bed. And maybe that author, who's in her, I don't know, 30s or 40s, will end up pursuing a similar path. All right, I think we've covered the range of universal world mental health, alcohol, drug, and media topics and sports topics. So uh, until next week. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Stanton. Isaac.